Welcome to the Distracted Driving Podcast. I'm Sean Genovese. This is episode 47, Tenure is Eroding. This is a part three of a four-part conversation with my friend James Moore, Emeritus Professor James Moore. I have, uh, once again, my uh, guest co-host, Stephanie Van Ash, with me for this conversation. If you did not catch the previous two episodes, I'll catch you up real quick. Um, James Moore spent 35 years teaching at USC here in Southern California. He recently retired and separated from the institution. His plan was, as an emeritus professor, to continue teaching part-time as, uh, you know, he felt like, and uh, because of some of his positions on some high-profile, I guess you could say, political issues over the years, his emeritus status was uh, initially withheld and then finally granted to him on the advice of the general counsel. And so while he is uh, an emeritus professor from USC, he is persona non grata uh, there in terms of continuing to teach. And uh, that's pretty much the topic of the, the first two parts of this conversation, which uh, led us into a, uh, a little bit of a conversation about the, the pros and cons of, of tenure. Uh, really, tenure was supposed to be there to protect unpopular ideas amongst the academic faculty at uh, a university like USC. And while um, while Jim didn't necessarily get fired or lose his job because of, of his uh, positions, he he wasn't going to be in a position to, to add value to the university anymore. <clears throat> so my question at the end of the last episode... Uh, it, it, the unintended consequence of tenure is that you end up with people that are not good at their jobs. So is, is tenure dead? And we're going to find out Jim's perspective on that here in episode 47. And the title may give it away. Tenure is eroding. Well, I've always been a little bit skeptical of tenure. Uh, the same way I'm a little bit skeptical of democracy. I just... There are flaws. I just don't have a better option to offer. Um, but I do think about it. So not every major institution has tenure. Um, Pepperdine, which I think is a rather vibrant, interesting place, uh, has never had tenure, to my knowledge. I shouldn't say never. Never in my experience have they had tenure. Um, and so everybody there works on fixed-term contracts. And some of the contracts are fairly lengthy, and that seems to work out. The objective of tenure, and tenure is a particularly, you know, U.S. institution, frankly. It's been emulated uh, globally, but the thinking grew out of the U.S. in the 19th century. Um, and the idea is to give faculty the latitude to have unpopular ideas without being fired. And the downside is that the way the tenure process works is you sometimes produce faculty of the sort that Sean wound up with, where you've got people who, um, frankly, are protected but not performing. And we do talk about mechanisms for trying to diminish those outcomes. It's one of the reasons it's so difficult to get tenure. 
when I said nobody owns the hiring process, that's because there's a great deal of consensus building that goes on when it comes to um, tenuring, uh, giving somebody effectively what is a lifetime contract. Um, and the, the criteria for tenure at a major research university like USC is you have to be a global expert on some relevant question. You have to be the world leader, um, uh, the, the go-to authority. And the question could be quite narrow. It just has to be uh, substantive enough that people agree it's important and that you, in fact, are the leader. And the way you... Uh, traditionally, the way that you reach that assessment is you ask other experts in the field. So there's a, a committee, a faculty committee that reviews the work of probationary faculty who want to be considered for tenure, and they make a decision about whether or not the work is good enough to ask others about it. And if it is, they clear that with the dean's office, and they go out, and they, the, the committee's job is to identify the experts in the field nationally or internationally and to reach out to them and ask their comprehensive opinion of that scholar's work. And once that happens and a finding is made, and if the dean is in agreement, then the whole matter goes to the university. And yet another committee reviews both the process and the contents of the results it produces. And they make a recommendation that the provost then considers. And the provost effectively makes the decision, though nominally it's the president who's signing off on the appointment. So it's a process that is designed to avoid what happened to Sean. But sometimes it, it doesn't work as well as we want it to. And there is a, a perverse incentive in tenure. I mean, there, there is something of a moral hazard there. And that once you have the job, if you don't take seriously your uh, the, the performance that you have promised, then... Um, you are, you, you, you can probably still survive. You can, um, you can underperform, and the system is ill-equipped to remove you. Now, that, mm -hmm. that actually factored into my decision to retire, because one of the things that you are tenured on is your ability to produce research funds, um, the, both the scholarship and the money, because there's a business dimension to what we do and the quality of your teaching, um, and the, the quality of your service to your field and to the institution and at many levels. So um, I was prepared to still say yes to most of that, but I was becoming reluctant to generate funded research, which was going to make it difficult to do the research because we use doctoral students to do the research and we have to have money to pay for them. And the university doesn't pay for them, the, right. or much of them. Uh, the faculty pays for them. And if I wasn't going to do that, then I wasn't holding up my end of the bargain. So um, I didn't want to be a faculty member that others could look at and say, you know, his decisions are hurting the institution. He's not buying into the model that he agreed to when we tenured him. He, he's not keeping his contract. And I declined to be in that posture. So that's, that was part of my decision to go. Uh, it was not, you know, it was part of it was, it was not driven by some level of dissatisfaction with the way we were being run, but rather the way the market for what we were doing was organized. Um, tenure is um, eroding, and maybe it should. I mean, there are market forces that push in the opposite direction. Um, 
2011, probably 50% of the full-time teachers in the U.S. were tenured. I mean, there are, are federal statistics on this, of the full-time university instructors, colleges and universities. Um, now it's closer to 30%. Um, at USC, That's a huge it's drop. 30. It, it is a huge drop. And it's entirely an outcome, a result of market forces, because it used to be that people who didn't, who, who weren't being hired to do research, let me step back one step further. The conventional tenured faculty member is making a trade. He or she is probably there at the institution because they're committed to the research agenda. And being required to teach is part of what they offer in exchange, what they accept in exchange for the opportunity to be paid to do research. So even if I don't have research funding, I'm allowed to do research. I can't do as much as I can with research funding, but the university would still pay me to do the research once I was, once I was tenured. Um, there were faculty who were prepared to teach only. And this was, a, they, you know, people who love universities and love university life and love the classroom, um, there are folks who are prepared to show up and teach only. And sometimes those folks are full-time elsewhere and you know they they understand the value of universities and want to stay connected. Uh, those people would probably pay us to let them teach, frankly, though we we haven't gone that far. Um, and then there are also well, I'm not going teachers. that far. And this was a <laughs> good good. I know I understand. Um, uh, there was a small complement of full time teachers, and they were the exception, not the rule. Uh, most of the untenured folks in universities at one time were part-time. Um, but this complement of full-time teachers grew. And they're more, the, the one reason they grow is because there are really two important revenue streams at research universities. Um, it's either tuition and patient care, if you've got a medical school, or it's tuition. right? And tuition is the center of the sun. So uh, people who are prepared to spend more time teaching generate more revenue and because they aren't being, they, are, they don't have to be the best in the world on some narrow research question, um, they can be paid less. Uh, and so you've got a group of full-time personnel who are producing more, consuming less in the way of resources. Even places that are as miserably managed as universities can be at times figure out that that's a good deal. And so... Uh, when I got to USC, the, the, I'd say the major complement of non-tenure track full-time professors was in the medical school. Um, medical schools have always been organized a little bit differently. They've got a stronger clinical focus. Uh, the Keck School of Medicine had maybe 1,200 faculty. 200 were tenured. They were the basic science faculty. And 1,000 were clinicians. They were research faculty. Uh, but they were, you know, they were still faculty members. Engineering has always had a complement of research faculty. Um, schools of business will sometimes have, I would say, had the leading complement of teaching faculty for many years. That is strictly teaching, people who are not doing research. But they tend to have smaller PhD programs. Um, so they were operating in a different market than, say, engineering or medicine. And so all of these personnel complements evolved because of the 
individual schools' responses to market opportunities. And the, de the demand for access to faculty positions is intense. The interest is intense. The opportunities to achieve tenure have been diminished. And uh, universities really don't want more tenured personnel than they need. Tenured personnel are expensive. Um, mm -hmm. They do perform a role that is, and not everybody has to perform exactly that role to be effective and useful to the institution. The full-time teachers have, in I'll just go ahead and say it, say it, have in many respects been out-competing the tenured faculty, and that's why those those ranks have grown. They produce more for the university, and they cost the university less. And so do you think that the result is on educational outcomes is is uh, as tenure is reduced? I mean, that was a 20 percent drop over what, 12 years. Mm -hmm. Is that better for education um, or maybe is there no change? I mean, what do you think the impact is on those outcomes? Um, I for me, it's undetermined. I mean, part of the. The premise in a research university is the research maintains expertise, and the expertise ideally will be translated into the quality of the classroom experience. Now, that doesn't always work the way it's supposed to. Some faculty, even though they're excellent researchers, uh, want to spend as little time away from that activity as possible, and that includes teaching. So they minimize their teaching role. And perhaps they are uninspired in the classroom. Though, frankly, um, most of the, re the faculty I know at research universities tend to take the teaching aspect very seriously. Because you, you don't devote your life to a research activity and a set of questions and the life of the mind without having some capacity for internalizing values. And very often those values include meeting the expectations of the people to whom you've made commitments, including students. And so most of the faculty, the, the full-time tenure stream personnel that I have known in my life have been very responsible teachers, not always as effective as they wanted to be, but people who wanted to be effective and wanted to deliver and devoted cognitive attention and intellectual resources to doing so. So I don't consider the, the, res the research university model deeply flawed when it comes to teaching. It's an expensive way to do it because the people who are doing it are not just teaching. They're spending some of their time in research. Some of the people who come to the teaching track love teaching first and foremost. Um, and they get really good at it. And they don't have quite the disciplinary depth of the uh, researchers, though they are very well trained. Most of the full-time teachers at research universities have doctorates or equivalent degrees. They don't necessarily have an active research agenda. They aren't writing, for the most part, research proposals. They aren't supervising doctoral students, which is part of what research universities are for. They're meant to train faculty. Um, but that doesn't, the, the fact that they don't have that ongoing research activity in their life doesn't really cripple their contribution at the lectern. Uh, the same way it's possible for a researcher to be a responsible teacher, even if he or she is not 
uh, doing quite the job that he wants, he or she wants, or even that the students want, in Sean's case, um, then you know, it's equally true that the fact that uh, a full-time teacher is not doing research doesn't cripple them at the lectern. Right? They, they're well-trained, they're well-educated, they're thoughtful people. Um, and many of them are involved in scholarship even if it's not what they're being paid to do by the university. They've internalized a set of values too where you know, they were trained by faculty who said this kind of activity is important and they still emulate that even if that's not what they're being paid to do. So um, I, I can't tell you whether it's been good or bad for research. It's been very good for universities because universities can now generate more tuition at less cost. And from a business point of view, it's been very the, good. The for reduction of tenure has been good for universities because of that, that economic shift you're saying. Uh, yes. And I, by the way, I mean, you just right. you described me uh, exactly. I, I have no interest in research. I would say that I do not have uh, the, the tremendous depth in uh, in my field, but I'm I'm well, uh, well trained, well educated. And I just I enjoy the teaching and I enjoy the time with mm -hmm. the students. Which, um, you know, one of the things now I, I'm teaching graduate students and and we're we're doing engineering management. So it's a little bit, as I tell them, it's a little bit of a squishier topic. But I spend a lot of time just facilitating a learning environment for them where they can go and do research and, um, and go investigate things and then come back and analyze it. And let's great. Let's have a conversation. Let's see how good a job you're doing in that context. And this is a slight, a slight pivot. Um, you know, I talk all the time about YouTube University, and now we have the uh, uh, AI getting more and more popular, and and we've just spent a good amount of time here talking about some of the uh, the pros and the cons of the university model and how expensive it can be, especially in that research model. So, what in your your view is the future of higher education? Because I I believe that the universities need to figure out how to stay competitive uh, because once, once the, the buyers for the product of the university, once the companies figure out that, you know what, I can get somebody who's equally skilled that didn't go to a four-year university and train them to do what I need to do at a much lower cost, um, when they figure that out, I think the university model's in trouble. And that's the end of episode 47, which is part three of our conversation with Emeritus Professor James Moore. You will get the answer to the question that we left off with about the future of the university education system in episode 48. That will be the fourth and final episode, uh, I'm sorry, the fourth and final part of our conversation with James Moore. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. I, uh, I find it to be very fascinating. I love his uh, uh, very um, practical and, and economic approach to uh, viewing the world, some of the world's problems and some of the challenges. I think that's a, a very, um, it's a very interesting lens to view things through. And I think it's, it's helpful and instructive. I've said for years, um, follow the money. 
And when you follow the money, a lot of the stuff that we've been describing and talking about over these past three episodes really becomes more clear. So if you agree with me, if you disagree with me, love to hear from you. You can head over to distracteddrivingpodcast.com. There's a, an opportunity to leave comments on each of the episodes. You can find me on social media. We've got uh, some show pages on uh, Facebook and Instagram. You can find me or Rex or Steph on LinkedIn. A lot of different ways to get a hold of us, uh, but we would love to have some uh, some feedback from our listening and viewing audience. Thank you for uh, supporting the show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time on episode 48.